Hi everybody, JP here with Dr. Ann Stroink, the current president of the AANS, excited to share some details about the upcoming meeting in Los Angeles this April. Dr. Stroink, I hear that this year the meeting has childcare opportunities for those attendees who will be bringing their families. Yeah, I think we're really excited about it because the AANS is really the first of organized neurosurgery to have on-site child services. And it's gonna to be to available to children of all ages from three months to 12 years. Um, of age and and it's new and it's fun to have have you know be an organization to do it for the first time. So the first two hours of the child care are complimentary on behalf of the double nest, and then the cost after that program is about twelve dollars per hour, and that's a good deal in LA in case people are wondering. But those <laughs> services be will be available primarily between seven a.m. and se and seven p.m. There's some slight variance on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Um, they kept it open uh, Friday, though, a little bit longer. So I'm hoping that people will come and use it. And it's uh, if you visit aans.org slash meetings, that's the way to set yourself up for it and bring your kids and enjoy uh, L.A. with your family. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am actually in person with JP here at the Spine Summit, Spine Section, here in uh, sunny Miami, Florida at the Fountain Blue Hotel. We are looking forward to a lot of in-person recordings, and I ran into an old buddy of mine uh, here who I really want to introduce to our listeners. His name is Rock Patel. He's an orthopedic spine surgeon. He's a personality. He is a, a lot of very interesting, exciting things. Uh, Rock, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Rock, tell us a little about your background, where you're from, what you do, your education. Yeah, so uh, I'm from Queens, New York. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, my parents are Indian immigrants. Um, I kind of spent most of my life in New York, but I went to college all the way across the country at UCLA, and then back to NYU for medical school, um, did my residency there. Now I'm at University of Michigan, and I've been there for almost 15 years as an orthopedic spine surgeon. Yeah, I think I first met you in Ann Arbor when Frank LaMarca and Paul Park invited me out. And when I first met you, they told me uh, what you do, and I said, he doesn't look like a surgeon. He looks like a <laughs> rock star. And they're like, no, 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 you're not far off, because rock was a legit DJ. Yeah, I used to be. Um, this is back in the day of vinyl. So when I went to college, it was 1992. It's pre-internet, so no MP3s. And uh, I uh, started handing out demo tapes on Sunset. And uh, before I knew it, I got picked up by a couple of clubs. And uh, I would spin at age 17 at some of like these great clubs in LA. And I did raves in Long Beach and, and house parties and frat parties too, but it was, it was great. So you can actually scratch a record. You know how to uh, do that. <laughs> really well, yeah. Actually, I have a 13-year-old daughter who had never heard vinyl before. And uh, I set up my turntables recently and I put some headphones on her and I put her hand on the vinyl and I started scratching with her. And uh, her jaw dropped. And she literally said, that's the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. So, <laughs> so yeah, she's going to be a future DJ, I think. Wall Street Journal had an article this week uh, saying that uh, they, for the first time in a long time, vinyl outsold DVD or CD. Oh, really? Yeah, for in a long time, you know. Yeah, I think there's a big nostalgia for a lot of vintage things. Like, I love the imperfections of vinyl and the sound of vinyl. But uh, vintage things in general, like like watches... Uh, which is another hobby of mine. They're making a big resurgence. So yeah, people people are nostalgic. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you you have a big personality, and you're an orthopedic spine surgeon, right? Yes. So you're similar to us. I mean, we, 
JP and I even consider ourselves, I think, spine surgeons, right, JP? Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what really fascinated me was when Paul Park, I, I asked him, what's, what's Rock doing? This is a number of years ago. He goes, oh, he's training. I'm like, what was he training? Like, what is he training for? Like, CrossFit? Or he goes, oh, he's going he's gonna to summit Everest. I'm like, you know, I've heard of people doing this. I know Neil Martin is very famous, the, the former chair at UCLA before Linda Leal. He's very famous for talking about it, but I don't think he summited. I think he attempted a summit. Um, and then running into you here at the spine section, it reminded me of that because I haven't seen you since you've yeah, gone up. It's been a while. Last time I saw you, you were in training. So tell us, because we, we talk about this kind of stuff a little bit. Tell us about what it is like to train, what motivated you to do it, what are the challenges? Like, like I want to spend time talking about this. Yeah, why yeah. climb the highest mountain? Yeah, I mean, I think why climb is, in general, is a, is a better question. Um, when, I, when I was a kid, Growing up in Queens, it literally was like the concrete jungle. We had no outdoors anywhere. Yep. And um, for some reason, I was the only one in my family that really wanted to be outside. I never had the opportunity. I grew up like in the classic New York like background, just playing stickball and, and doing whatever. Uh, and then uh, one day after residency, one of my uh, former classmates from residency asked me to go on a climbing trip with him and his buddies uh, to Colorado. And I went, and that was my first time climbing, my first time in the mountains. And at that point in time, I couldn't run a mile. I was about 200 pounds, and I was a typ- typical ortho bro power lifter. I was mm. huge. You were overweight? No, I was just... Oh, you were just... Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. I used to just lift. I used to lift a ton, but I couldn't run a half a mile. So mm. I went on this trip, and I was horrible at it, um, but I really loved the experience. And um, I love the camaraderie of being part of a team, and I missed that because residency was over. And um, I really missed having a, a goal to strive for. And the mountains were just stunning. So um, I did really horrible on that one. Uh, but it like sparked this passion and then after that I started uh, kind of climbing in the US and that expanded to around the world and um, I had my sights targeted on higher and higher mountains and then Everest was naturally on the list. Yeah, I mean, I, I can truly and deeply relate to that. I think I talk about this often with my friends. We have such an incredible job and it's a privilege to have our job, but maybe the worst part of it is how frequently we have to be indoors. Yeah. It's just it's such a, a huge and unavoidable amount of your time is spent inside with conditioned air and artificial lights. So having this avenue to get outside, get away from all of it, and have this health and fitness side of things is uh, something to applaud, I think, and, and right now at my stage of career to envy. Well, I think it's also good for our mental health. I mean, we have these jobs that are very strenuous and we need some outlet for them, you know, and I don't know how to play a musical instrument or draw. So my outlet is fitness and extreme sports in, in general. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. As you say, our, our job is so strenuous, but it's a mental strain. And, and we often talk about how it's an emotional or even a spiritual strain. And how do you choose to get away from that by taxing your body? Yeah, absolutely. right. There, there could be such relief in straining your body and pushing it to the limits because there's almost a thoughtless sense that you that you achieve out there, right? Yeah, it simplifies your life. So when you're on any mountain, not just Everest, but your goal is to stay alive and get to the top, essentially. Uh, you don't have a million emails you have to answer from administrators. You don't have you know patients trying to call you. You're not worried about your OR schedule. I feel like in daily life, we're being pulled in a million directions and all of that just stops. You know, there's no cell service, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There's no internet, which is fantastic. You know, you can just put all that away. And on certain climbs, you know, like on Everest for two months, you really don't have consistent internet and you're just um, learning how to be you again. It's really interesting. Now, as I'm sitting next to you, I, you look like you got about a 9% body fat, something like that. Less. 
seven? <laughs> uh, probably five or so. Okay, so I've gotten to about nine when I was bodybuilding, and, and that's crazy. It's, it's very difficult. You've obviously conditioned your body. But let me just make sure there are no ringers here. You are, since you're from India, you're, you don't have some of that Himalayan blood where you no, have different no, no. genes. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I wish I did. I wish I did. I don't. Um, you have a different hemoglobin or something like that, right? No, no. Yeah, it all depends. It's sure I do. There's this really great book called The Sports Gene. And it talks about how different um, uh, people from different regions, uh, uh, not acclimatized to altitude, but just do better with certain sports. So why are um, people in South America that live at high altitudes uh, more efficient at high altitudes compared to people at Nepal that live at high altitudes? And there are different physiological mechanisms. It's pretty fascinating. But I, no, I don't have any of that. I want to come back to physiological efficiency because that's not unimportant when you think about jet fighter pilots or neurosurgeons for that matter. But let's talk about the climb. Yeah. Tell, tell, just give us a little window because I've had, I'm not like JP, I have no desire to be outdoors. <laughs> I like air conditioning, processed food, uh, internal environments, control environments, but tell us about the actual climb, like the preparation and what you went through. Yeah, so the preparation, um, ideally if you live in a place like Colorado or anywhere with altitude, you can you know train um, at altitude and get a lot of outdoor time. I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you've been there. Altitude is zero. There are barely any hills, right? So uh, you do what you can. Uh, so for fitness, I tried to replicate hiking by doing stairs. So I got a key to the big house, which is our football stadium. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would go, you know, multiple times a week and run up and down to the big house mm-hmm. for hours on end with a backpack. Um, there's, um, I didn't have it back then, but now I have a tent that I put over my bed that can simulate different altitudes that I sleep in. Um, which Wait, is, they, what do you do? You drop the air pressure or oxygen level? What oxygen level. So you can control the oxygen level in the te- in the tent. So there's a there big, is a lower limit though, right? You can't. You can set it to twenty one thousand feet. Is what you can set it to oh, on geez. the machine I have. Um, <laughs> it's kind of miserable because the machine is loud and it's really hard to breathe, and it's like it's called a relationship killer. I was going to say, do you have any angry ex girlfriends or wives? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's what you have to do. Uh, one of my friends is a gym, which I haven't used, but it's close to where I live in Michigan, where he also has, um, it, was his, it was his grandmother's apple orchard. And the way they preserve apples after they pick them is they store them in a massive room and they lower the oxygen level. Mm. Um, so he's not a farmer, he's a climber too. So you convert it into a fitness gym. Essentially, he can control the altitude in this thing and he has concept one machines and weights and treadmills. It's pretty sweet. And people sleep in there before they go to like um, high altitude trips. Yeah. So anyway, um, I just did a lot of aerobic working out. I climbed a lot because I think being efficient in the mountain with your movements keeps you really safe. And, you know, Everest is not, like, um, the only thing I've done. I climb a lot in general. Um, so I love being in the mountains. So I got better at vertical ice climbing, better at general mountaineering, uh, and that made me more efficient when I went to Everest. Yeah, you know, you mentioned safety. I, I will say, though, um, our listeners know I'm a, I'm a musician, and I'm a, a musician out of place in this, in this field. And people always ask, how do you keep up with it? And, oh, you know, I, I sing in the car. I have a guitar at home and a, and a keyboard, but you know I try to sing in the car on the way to work, on the way home. That you know, keep up with the hobby. You're you're sleeping at a low oxygen content. That is some dedication to a hobby um, to to keep your body. Are you in saying shape. that uh, us asking you to sing at dinner once it doesn't equate to sleeping in a tent? <laughs> that, that it could that's, kill you. That, that's harder for me than sleeping in a tent. Like I'd be more embarrassed singing at dinner. Well, if you want to talk about performance anxiety, I I could sing off note and I could be embarrassed if you have a, a slip of the hand or. Um, some kind of psychological block that affects performance, that, that would be a, a very real slip, not just a, a social slip. And that's what I want to ask you about. So you're an orthopedic surgeon. 
your hands are your livelihood, your, your body, health, and well-being in general is, is your livelihood, uh, both for your own life and the patients you take care of. We've talked on the show before about how we face risk in the operating room, we mitigate risk and manage it, but it's not risk to ourselves. Even though we feel internally sometimes we have this stress and it's a life and death situation, it's never we ourselves or our bodies that are on the line. Whereas you're going out there on, on the mountains and your performance, your technical expertise and executing what you know you have to do, it is your own body on the line in a very literal sense. So have you ever had any experiences on a climb where you had a near miss or an actual injury? And how did you manage that? Yeah, I had, uh, I've had a few um, near misses and I've seen other people pass away as well. I think mm. by looking at other people's mistakes, you kind of learn um, uh, what to do. Um, a near miss I had recently last November I was uh, climbing in Nepal again on another peak called Ahmed de Blom, and I was uh, rappelling and I must have gotten on the wrong rappel line. And if you're not rappelling in line with the rope, you take a massive swing. So I took a huge swing over open air mm. and um, I had my hand on the brake hand. If you let go, you'd fall. And as I was approaching the wall at high speeds, all I thought about was hold on to that brake hand. And yeah. I slammed into that wall really hard. Um, my ears were ringing. I had a lot of pain in my ribs and my pelvis. Um, and at that point in time, I knew I had to somehow make it uh, uh, back to the, the path to walk down uh, and make it off the mountain. And I think like in surgery, you learn how to compartmentalize, right? So if you're operating and something bad happens, you can't just dwell on that. You have to compartmentalize. You have to uh, problem solve in that situation and move on. And it was very, very similar over here. I knew what I had to do. I had to do a systems check, make sure I was okay, um, find a way I can get back on the right rope and then and walk down. And I had a similar experience on Everest um, on my summit rotation. I don't know if I tell you this. On my summit rotation, going from um, camp three to camp four, and after that's the summit, so two days away from the summit, as I was getting ready to leave, I started coughing violently, and I heard mm. um, an audible snap, and I felt a sharp pain in my ribs, and I mm. broke my I broke my rib. Um, from coughing? From coughing. And uh, it was... It was intense. Have you guys broken ribs before? Oh. Not, not on myself. It, it hurts. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it hurts a lot. I have a lot of empathy, I have a lot of empathy for patients now. Um, yeah, so it hurt a lot. And I, and I went outside. And at that point in time, I had a decision to make. Do you go up or down? And um, I decided I was close enough to the summit. I should just push on. Um, so I went out. But it was like the most painful climb from Camp 3 to Camp 4 because I had a freshly broken rib. I'm on oxygen. I could barely breathe because of the mm. rib and, and the altitude. And to climb up, you use a Jumar, which is a device you hold in your hand, you slide up a fixed rope and you pull yourself up. Going up, the, the rope is typically in your right hand side and I broke my right rib, so I could barely manipulate my hand, so I was using my contralateral hand to go up. Um, and you know, I debated going down, but I just checked in with myself again and I knew this hurt, but I had plenty of oxygen and I didn't feel like I was at my limit yet, uh, so, so I kept going. So yeah, these things happen. Yeah. These things so happen. We, we often talk about in the world of surgery, you have a complication, something goes wrong, and people always react differently to that. Some people, uh, I think this is the minority within a community of surgeons, but some people, uh, they make a mistake, something goes wrong, and they never want to think about it again. They, they turn away, they're afraid to walk down that road again. But I think many surgeons who I've spoken with, obviously this is down the road for me career-wise, I haven't been in this situation before, but many surgeons I've spoken with, when they have their worst complication or something goes terribly wrong, they want to immediately do another surgery to get out of their system, turn the page, move on and go, okay, so I, 
I had an ACDF where this happened. I need to do another ACDF to get that out of my system. So when you had that near miss with that swing, were you afraid to go back? Were you trepidatious or did you immediately think I need to get back out there and, and get past this? No, I mean, I was certainly concerned and um, I've gone climbing since then. Um, so I've gone ice climbing quite a bit since then and, and mm. you do these big rappels over 300 feet, right? And um, I'm certainly a little bit more cautious when I rappel down and you know I've learned from my mistake how to system check a little bit more so I can, I can mitigate that from happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't want to pause from climbing because I didn't want the fear to start setting in. I think it's very valid. Mm-hmm. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I mean, you guys are you're neurosurgeons, but um, uh, we take care of a lot of motorcycle accidents. Mike, I know you ride as well or used to ride. Uh, I remember taking care of this uh, kid who had this really horrible motorcycle accident. And that was on journal ortho call and uh, X-fixed his pelvis. And uh, I was really scared about getting back on my bike. But as soon mm-hmm. as I left the OR, I went home, I got my bike and I rode around for a little bit. You know, I like, Rock, how you said uh, you check yourself because, you know, we I'll turn our listeners' attention back to Rick Geyer's episode in talking about when he gets a problem or gets stuck or CSF leak, he, he, he was told to tell – and I tell the residents this now. Let's go take a look at the films for a second and reset their brain mm. and then not get caught up in that moment. But but when you when you had that rib fracture, you still summited after that? I did, yeah. So um, – Wow. I usually was, you know, we had a great team when we were going and I, I kept up with my team and I was maybe in the, in the front of my team yeah. for pretty much the whole trip. Um, but it was really scary as I was going from camp three to camp four, you go up the Lotsi face, which is really yeah, the Lotsi face, face, right? Yeah. So we're going up the Lotsi face and we get to these, these things I'd read about, like the yellow band, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, all of a sudden I lost track of my team. I fell way far behind. And before I knew, so they're it, passing you. They're passing you. They've all passed me. Like everyone's passed mm-hmm. me. I just can't keep up with anyone because I can't take a breath and I, uh-huh. I can't move my arm. And I found myself on the Lutzi face, you know, without anyone that I knew near me. Um, and I was hours behind everyone else. The first time I was behind everyone else, and it was a really uh, surreal moment. Um, I had to really do a, a check in and say, okay, is this a dangerous scenario for yeah. me? Am I going to make it there in time? How's the weather? You know, how am I feeling? Um, and you're, you're, you're not getting adequate oxygen either. So you're not thinking like you're just here rested. And yeah, you're not thinking clearly. And you're also motivated by multiple things, right? Like, you know, this is a goal you've worked towards. I've been there for two months now. I trained for years to be over here. And I could see And paid summit. money. I paid money, yeah. But the money wasn't really, honestly, like we're all in a fortunate position where that wasn't much of a factor. But I see you and I see, I see you have 10 fingers, right? Yeah, I mean, I do. Do you still have all 10 toes? Yes, I do. So this is, I mean, not everybody listening is going to understand what this means. Um, Everest is certainly not the most lethal uh, of mountains, but the lethality rate is not low, right? Yeah. The year I was there, a lot of people uh, died. What is it, 8% or something like that, or 5%? Well, I mean, I think it varies by year, year by year. When I was there, we had uh, 12 people, I believe, that died that season. Um, but you're passing these bodies that have died in the past, and they're kind of like, it's different, right? It's cold up there, so they're kind of like freeze-dried. Yeah, they're, they're kind of preserved. Ground. You know, it's interesting. I think I only passed one... Um, old uh, cadaver, but I passed a lot of people that had recently died or um, were dying and ultimately did die. Um, and you and didn't, you don't take pictures of this stuff out of respect or like, like, do yeah, you, yeah, imagine I mean, some people don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, no, not at all. I mean, you feel a lot of sympathy, you know, you, you put your head down and you wish well for the people that passed away and their families. And then, um, I, I'm sorry, as you're summiting, you're passing people who are actively dying. Yeah, so there's nothing that can be done. This is the interesting thing about hypoxia, right? So when you're trying to summit, it's very clear to everyone around you 
that you're not moving well and that you can't do this. And you can tell people you need to turn around, you can't do this. Um, but you can't physically make someone turn around yeah. and bring them back down the mountain. So I remember when we were going up, there was this one climber uh, on summit day that was moving exceptionally slow. Um, and uh, it was very clear this person was not going to make the summit. It was very clear that they were not going to make it down unless they turned around. Yeah, that's what they say. Away. It's more dangerous coming down, right, than going yeah, up. Yeah, because right? you expend all of your energy, right? right so yeah. you're just spent at that point in time. So yeah. what are you going to do? Um, and, you know, my friend tried convincing her that she needed to stop and she needed to, to come back down. And uh, he tried for a long time and just refused. So you can't physically manhandle someone at 8,000 meters, you know, at like 27, 28,000 feet and force him down. And that person ultimately died on the way down. Do the Sherpas, I mean, I'm, I, there's a whole culture around this, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. At the base camps, right? But I don't want to dwell too much on the negative because the positive is summiting. So tell us what it feels like this. And we want to, do you have a picture you can put, help us post? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. We'd like to post yeah. your picture on, on the top Everest. Yeah, wherever I go. Okay? Yeah, yeah, so wherever I go, I take the Michigan flag and I take the Michigan <laughs> flag to the top of every summit. So, uh, yeah, as a thank you for giving me time off to go do this. Right. So, yeah, I have a picture of me on the summit with the amazing blue uh, block logo. So what did it feel like to be up there? It was interesting. Um, I think the most surreal moment was when we... Um, got to the south summit, and then you can see the summit ridge, the Hillary Step, and the summits there. And this is a picture that I had seen for, for, for years. Um, and it's this uh, thing called the Cornish Traverse with the drop off on one side to Nepal and the other side to, uh, to Tibet and uh, to China. And, uh, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're smart yeah, to yeah. bet which may or may not yeah. be part of China. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. For perpetuity. So, uh, um, so yeah, I remember seeing that, and I'd seen that picture a million times, and I literally had tears in my eyes when I saw that, because I knew I'd make it to the top at that point in time. And mm. uh, that was probably more powerful than standing at the top. Standing at the top was amazing, um, but it was kind of a little bit of a blur. And even though you're on oxygen, you are still hypoxic, for sure, for sure. Um, mm. So yeah, we got to the top, we celebrated for like 20, 30 minutes. Luckily, we made the, the decision to leave really late on the, on the day, so we, our team was like the only team on the, on the summit. And then we started coming down, and myself and my buddy were the first two people down. And um, I said, how are you doing, Bjarni? That's his name. He's from Iceland. And uh, Bjarni goes, good. Did you make it to the top? And he was so hypoxic because we had a whole conversation in multiple pictures just a few hours ago at the top of the mountain, and he had no recollection of any uh, of that stuff. Yeah, it was really interesting. Wow. Um, well, this is just a phenomenal set of experiences. I, I have climbed molehills compared to the mountains we're talking about. I did... Mount Storm King in Washington State, which is, uh, I think, a trivial height. But even getting up the last leg of that, it's a very narrow climb at the end. And I was, you know, no safety equipment. I was looking down and feeling a little woozy. Um, I wonder what, what, what's next on your list? You've done Everest now. So for a climber, as Dr. Wang said, it's not the deadliest mountain, but it is the legend, it's the one that even people who are not in this world know of and think about. And, you know, that picture that you've been looking at for years, you finally made it. Where do you go from there, having summoned at Everest? So climbing is interesting. It's kind of like uh, running. I like to run as well. So I'd say that mountaineering is kind of like um, marathoning. Um, mm. And there are other disciplines like, you know, hurdling and sprinting. Um, and so climbing is pretty variable as well. Um, I really have gotten into ice climbing uh, a lot lately. Um, it's more technical and you climb frozen waterfalls, which I love. So I went two weeks ago to Wyoming and I'm going to go next weekend to Wyoming to go do that. So I've been really practicing getting better at technical ice climbing. 
Um, I still love mountaineering and uh, I like high altitude stuff. So I'm going to go back to, to Nepal and Pakistan, hopefully in 2024 and climb K2. Mm. Um, so yeah, I have a few things on my list. I feel like you would be a great neurosurgeon. In, in a lot of my talks, I put up slides in Sir Edmund Hillary, as you said, of the Hillary Step. Um, you know, he's in my talks because the explorer spirit is part of what neurosurgeons do, going into the unknown, if you will. Um, the closest I'll ever get to this is watching a movie. So I love, I mean, I, I want to know, and if you watch, if you don't watch movies, it's fine, but like 127 hours, The Alpinist, Free Solo, In the Thin Air. Like, yeah. I've, you, right, I've seen them all. Yeah. What's your favorite uh, mountain climbing movie? Because they're all scary. The Alpinist by far. So, okay. So The Alpinist, I don't want to ruin any endings, but you mentioned your ice climbing. And that makes what Alex Honnold, who spoke at the Congress of Resurgence, Alex mm-hmm. Honnold's Free Solo, right? Solo El Capitan, and amongst other things. Um, ice climbing is more dangerous. In a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the stuff that all these guys do is next level. I like to say that I'm a surgeon, I'm a dad, I'm a guy that likes to go outside. I'm not a professional climber like, like these guys are. But uh, it's one of these things where if you do a little bit of it, you appreciate how dangerous it is. So if you're watching The Alpinist uh, or, or Free Solo, you're like, wow, that's crazy. My palms are sweating. But if you are if you actually do the sport and then you watch it, it's more terrifying. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, you know, we know, we as doctors know what LD50 is, right? Yeah. A lethal dose 50. And we know that the LD50, I think, is two stories of fall. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're alpining on an ice cliff or whatever, El Capitan, at 10,000 feet or 1,000 feet or even 100 feet almost. Yeah, but just watching, like, um, Marc-Andre Leclerc, like, climb... Um, free ice climbing so soloing ice um and mixed routes you know like gently putting in his pick and just hanging on one ice tool i mean that makes my palms sweat right now okay about it. everybody listening has to watch the alpinist because i'm watching the alpinist and i'm watching it's as ridiculous okay so he has two ice picks right and yeah. you guys don't know what we're talking about please get educated and as he uses one hand he has to put if he doesn't want to use the pick he has to put the pick he puts it over his shoulder yeah okay and then he'll grab for it and put it back up. And this is a thing that looks like a sickle, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like it's, like a, it's like having a simple tool. And one of the things I tell people in the OR every day is I don't drop shit. And, I, and I'll tell you, I really don't. I'm occasionally something will drop, but it's pretty rare. I don't contaminate headlights. Like if you're dropping shit, like how could you be a surgeon? But I'll leave the room, come back in 20 minutes, and they drop like 10 things. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, if this guy drops one of these picks, he's done. Yeah, he is. You cannot go down with one pick. Yes. Or yes. up. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you're if you're roped up, you're okay. But like what he's doing, soloing so those on. huge routes, and by himself, right? <laughs> if he's climbing next to someone, maybe they have an extra tool in a pack or something like that. But this guy was by himself doing these crazy yeah. routes and transitioning from hand to ice tool and just hanging on these like thin pieces of ice yeah. with his entire body weight. It's insane. And it's, as we know from physics and chemistry, as you put pressure on ice, it tends to melt. Yeah. It and changes. It's, and you know, ice is such a ephemeral medium. It changes all the time. And uh, I mean, besides his strength and his technical abilities, his ability to read like what's safe, what's not, what's good, what's not is mind blowing. But what I got out of it is if he dropped one pick at oh, one thousand feet, he's, he's toast. And so I'm going to go back to the OR again, and I said this last year to one of the residents. I'm like, you know what? If you were, what's his name, Marc Andre Leclerc? Yeah, Marc yeah. Andre Leclerc. Marc Andre Leclerc, you'd be 
you'd be a dead motherfucker. Dead. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. dropped a Woodson elevator. That was the only thing you had to keep you alive. Now you're dead. Dude, I would drop tools all the time. So I actually use leashes. So the tools are attached to my harness because wow. I use a harness and rope when I climb. I don't do this whole stuff. It's insane. Um, yeah, so I'm terrified of dropping it. Even though I'm on a rope, I'm terrified of dropping it. No, it's crazy stuff. Well, listen, we do want to be respectful of your time. We know you have to go uh, go visit some family. And uh, we want to thank you for being generous with your time and sharing these really deep thoughts. Uh, and uh, and if you haven't learned something today, boy, I mean, this is, to me, it's scary just talking about it. Yeah. Well, that's stuff you do scary, too. You explore all the time. You try new technology. You push the limit all the time. And it's just in your yeah, world. But so. JP said, that's not, and I'm not saying that, it, like, I don't care about my patients. I'm saying it's actually not my body. I would say it's harder when it's not your body because now you're responsible for someone else. If something happens to me because of my actions, that's on me and I can control that. And I would feel less guilty and, and not as bad as if my actions hurt someone else. So I think what, what you all do is, is even harder. So that's a very moral position. That's like folding your buddy's parachute. Yeah. Yeah, as it, as it should be. It should be a, a greater peril when someone else is at risk. But you're right. The, the heart does beat a little stronger. You when... pick a good buddy for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And not your ex-wife. <laughs> that would be a bad thing. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Great seeing you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.